I love being a part of a church that's striving to make a tangible difference in our world and also in our local community. Uh, this past week I had the opportunity to be with about 25 members of our congregation. We traveled uh, down to a little place called San Catin, Mexico. And it was in the Baja region of Mexico. We did a lot of different things. We did a vacation Bible school in the evening. Uh, we uh, helped build this church building. Um, when we got there, there was no roof on the building. So by the time we left, the roof was on, tin was on. Uh, we also uh, visited in that little town and met some people that, uh, that they're inviting and that they're working with. I got to spend some time with our minister, Jorge, and Jorge is just a wonderful um, young man. His wife is Violeta, and he has three little children, and they're just doing a marvelous job in that uh, part of the world. We also did a um, medical clinic during the day as well, so we had some... Um, help people uh, do, with all sorts of, of medical uh, issues. It was just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And what I, I want to tell you that because we're partnering with that church. Uh, we're making a difference not only here, but we're also making a difference in Mexico. We ought to feel good about that wonderful partnership. But not only are we striving to make a difference in other parts of the world, we're striving to make a difference right here. And so next Saturday morning, we get to do, I think it's one of the highlights of our church year where we get to hand backpacks and school supplies to families, to children, as we begin, as they begin the, the brand new school year. And so if you're not signed up to help, I want to encourage you before you leave today, in the very back, to sign up. It will bless your life. We still are in need of a lot of volunteers. If you would like to help financially, we're still in need of some people to make some financial contributions. If you want to see Hope or Annabelle, or other people involved in that ministry, they would love uh, to see you as well. So if you could uh, sign up today, uh, that, would be, that would be marvelous. As I mentioned just a few moments ago, we're taking a break for two weeks from our uh, message series on the soul. And today we're going to talk about good shepherds. You see, one of the signs of a healthy and growing church is that a healthy church periodically is adding to the leadership base. Now, when I meet with new families in our Next Steps uh, ministry, I often talk to them about our shepherds, and I will talk about how we, we tend to shepherd through our Bible classes. I talk about how we take shepherding very seriously. But if you think about it, if the church continues to grow, we need to continue to add shepherds to take care of and minister to the body. If you imagine shepherds primarily as a decision-making body, then you need six or seven shepherds, perhaps. But if you imagine shepherds being people who, who take care of the flock, it's a lot easier to take care of 25 families than 50 families. And one of the things that each shepherd has at College Hills is their own particular flock. So as today, as we think about shepherding, I would like for us to take a look at that passage that Adam read for us just a few moments ago out of the book of Acts. In that passage, especially in verse 28, Paul is about ready to leave these elders, probably won't see them again, these Ephesian elders. He's very close to them, and he gives them these instructions. In Acts 20, verse 28, 
He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of God, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Notice, Paul says, keep watch over yourselves. You see, before your leadership expands to other people, we must first learn to manage ourselves. Or to say it another way, before you care for others, you need to care for yourself. And then Paul gives this command. He says, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Notice, that's in the imperative mood. This is something that Paul is deeply concerned about. Be shepherds of the church of God. God loves the church so much that he has placed men in congregations to care for and feed the flock. And so the question I want to grapple with for just a moment this morning is what does it mean to be a good shepherd? Now, I know some of you are sitting in this room thinking to yourself, well, this message really isn't for me because I'm not a shepherd. But I'm speaking to some people right now who, though you may not be a shepherd currently, in five or ten years, or maybe even less, you may find yourself in this role. God is doing a work in your heart right now, and you're starting to feel this sense that you need to be a shepherd. But even if you never become a shepherd in the local church in, in the sense that I'm talking about today, in this formal sense, all of us have a shepherding function. I'm speaking to some parents right now, and your chief role is to shepherd your children. I'm speaking to some life group leaders, and your role is to shepherd your life group. I, I'm speaking to some men and women who are leading ministries, and your role right now is to shepherd that ministry. So all of us uh, have, in, in a sense, our shepherds, and this message applies to every one of us. So what does it mean to be a good shepherd? Well, the first word that comes to my mind when I think of good shepherds is the word servant. Now, if we're not careful, we end up with some very worldly images of what leadership in the kingdom looks like. We may think of an elder as someone who sits on a board. Or we might think of a shepherd as some sort of super CEO type person whose job is to keep the shareholders happy. Or maybe we think of shepherding or being an elder as primarily a decision-making function. And that's the person who gets to call the shots in a local church. Or maybe we think of a shepherd as a kind of super-Christian, the kind of person who knows more Bible than the Apostle Paul himself. I don't know what you think of when you think of an elder or a shepherd, but here's how I like, would like to frame the question. How did Jesus lead? You see, he was the greatest leader ever. Think about it. He started with just a handful, just a few, 12 disciples. And from that band, today there's a worldwide movement, over a billion people, or several, actually a couple of billion people, claim some sort of allegiance to Jesus. And yet as we think about the way Jesus led, he was never coercive, he never led in a heavy-handed, authoritarian kind of way. In fact, toward the end of his, of his life, you may recall the story, James and John their mother came to see Jesus. And like all good mothers, 
they wanted their boys to have an edge, to have an advantage. So they had this private conversation with the Lord, and they said, Lord, we, or she said, Lord, I want my sons to sit at your right and left in the kingdom of God. Now, she didn't really know what she was asking. And so the other disciples, when they got wind of what James and John's mother had done, they became angry. And so Jesus used this as a teachable moment, and he called, he called his disciples over to him. And he said, listen to me, take a look at the rulers of the Gentiles. He said, they lord it over people. They exercise and, uh, power and authority over others. And he looked at them in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 26. He said this, he said, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. In the kingdom of God, the way up is down. One of those most well-known moments in the ministry of Jesus was that last night before Jesus went to the cross and the disciples are all in the upper room. They're around the table. And you know what Jesus does? He gets up from the table, he takes his outer garment off, and he puts on a servant towel and begins to wash the disciples' feet. And after he'd done that, in John 13, he says this, Now that I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I've read that verse many times before, and I've thought about the symmetry of that verse. And to me, it should say, though I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, now you should wash my feet. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, you should wash one another's feet. And that's what good shepherds do. They're in the feet-washing business. This past week, when I was down in Mexico with a couple of elders with with Tom and with Jeff, I got to see firsthand shepherds that serve. I, I saw Jeff as he was helping to build a church building. I saw Tom as he was planning meals and working in the kitchen. Here were, here were guys who were servants, and, and I think that's just indicative of kind, the kind of elders we currently have, men who see their role first as servants. Good shepherds serve. But here's something else about good shepherds. Good shepherds seek and know the flock. Jesus said this in John chapter 10 and verse 11, one of those great I am statements. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. One of the things we learn from Jesus is that good shepherds know the flock. And so in verse 3 of John 10, Jesus writes, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You see, leadership in the kingdom is relationally driven, not, not positionally driven. The good shepherd knows his sheep. Our effectiveness as leaders is in direct proportion to our relationship with the flock. I love that story I've told before about Max Licato. Licato talks about his assistant, Karen Hill, who went in and had some surgery. And when she awoke in the recovery room, she, she heard a fellow patient groaning. And then she heard a well-meaning nurse trying to comfort him. The nurse said, settle down, Tom. The nurse said, just, just go with the pain, Tom. Tom, it's, it's going to be okay, Tom. It, 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 just just kind of go with it. It's going to be all right, Tom. And after a moment or two, the patient groaned again, and the patient said, my name's not Tom. And so she looks down at the chart. She said, 
it's okay, Harry. Things are going to be right. Okay, Harry. Just go with it, Harry. Just go with it. There's some truth in the fact that good leaders know the sheep. Our shepherds at College Hills seek to know us. I've mentioned already that we have this philosophy of shepherding at College Hills where we, we have shepherds in all the Bible classes, and that's one of the mechanisms we use for shepherding. One of the questions we often ask when new members place membership here is, does anybody know them, and what Bible class are they in? And we try to find those natural relationships, so that's what our, our shepherds work through. Good shepherds know the flock, but also good shepherds seek those who are in their flock. Good shepherds are there in crisis moments. I've had the privilege of watching shepherds pray with some of you when you're going through a crisis moment. I've seen shepherds' hearts in this church as they've reached out to people who have fallen away, reached out to people who've gone astray, who are hurting, who are discouraged. Good shepherds also pray for their flock. The Lord's brother once asked, is anyone sick? Verse 14 of James 5, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Oil is symbolic of the presence of God. In the Old Testament, whenever a prophet or priest or king was set aside, they would anoint that prophet or priest of king or, or king. The, the oil symbolized the fact that, the, that they were in the presence of God. Prayer is very important. One of the key tools for a shepherd is a little vial of oil, a little olive oil as we pray for others and anoint them with oil. There's an image seared in my mind, I think it'll be there forever, of good shepherds. When we were living in Albuquerque and my wife was very ill with cancer, I'll never forget the moment when I received a phone call from one of our shepherds. It had been some time since they had seen my wife, and they said, Kevin, can we come to the hospital and pray for your wife? I said, certainly. I'll never forget that day as eight elders huddled around her bed, and they anointed her head with oil, they held hands and laid hands on her and prayed for her. How do you think we felt? How do you think my wife felt? Oh, we felt loved and cared for. And as I looked at those godly men in that moment, I realized that was shepherding at its best. I can tell you that our elders at College Hills are men of prayer. They're not perfect. None of us are perfect. But I want you to know they're godly men of prayer. In every elders meeting, there's a significant time spent praying. I love how we have our elders meetings. Our elders meetings aren't haphazard. Since we meet just once a month as an elder group, we want to we maximize that time. And so we, every, every month, we do five things. We, first of all, fellowship with one another. We have a meal together. This is an important time of the meeting as we spend time talking with one another, developing relationships with one another. Second, we grow together through some sort of training. Right now, we're thinking about generational differences. and We're learning. We're a multi-generational church, and we believe that's a strength. But we're learning how we all think differently and react differently. Three, we communicate with one another about our flocks and what's going on in the life of the church. Four, we bring some group or ministry or person in to pray over them and, 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 and bless them. 
We believe there's so much good being done in this church, in the community. We want to just acknowledge that and recognize that and affirm that. And five, in every meeting, we spend time praying specifically for our flocks. But not only do we spend significant time on, on our Monday, morning, Monday evening meetings, we also spend time praying every other Wednesday evening, praying for the flock. One of our elders, Jim Hundley, leads this, uh, these gatherings, and typically these, these gatherings, we, we call folks who we believe need prayer and some sort of affirmation, and these moments are incredibly meaningful. If I were to ask you to raise your hand, I'm not going to do that, but if I were to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever been to one of those prayer and affirmation meetings on Wednesday night, probably a lot of you would raise your hands. Good shepherds pray for the flock. Good shepherds also feed the flock. As Paul was speaking to the elders in Ephesus, he has some real concerns. And so he says in verse 29, I know that, that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. In fact, and, and I believe these must have been chilling words for them to hear. Some, he says, even from their number will, will distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. It seems to me Paul is concerned about two things that I'm convinced every eldership should be concerned about. Paul is concerned first about the integrity of the gospel. Uh, Paul is always concerned that the gospel, this good news message, will be proclaimed clearly. But he's also concerned about the unity of the body. And those are two things that every one of us should be concerned about, especially elders. So what does Paul do? Paul says in verse 32, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, he says, which can build you up. I like how Paul describes the word. He calls it the word of his grace. Now, later when Paul writes to Timothy, who's working with the church in Ephesus, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20 that he's to guard what's been entrusted to his care. And then he says, I want you to turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. We're to turn away, he says, from godless chatter. Rather, we're to hold on to the gospel. It's amazing. I find more and more that, that people aren't, don't really understand what the gospel is. But without God's word, this word of grace, we can never fully appreciate, understand the precious gospel. Shepherds feed the flock in several ways, some by public teaching. Some of our best teachers are elders. Frank Galbraith is a wonderful teacher. Tom Wallace is a great teacher. Jay Berry is a marvelous teacher. But not all shepherds teach publicly. Shepherds feed the flock also by one-on-one -on -one in private conversation. In each of our services, we provide those moments when you have an opportunity to get with a shepherd and his his wife. And so at the end of this service, we'll have a couple of shepherds in the very back. Those are wonderful ministry opportunities. If you've come into this room today and you're discouraged, or maybe you need a word of encouragement, you need somebody to pray for you, we'll have elders in the very back. It creates wonderful moments for that. But all feed the flock by encouraging the public preaching. Regardless, good shepherds have a high view of, of the word of God. They know that the word of grace is able to build us up. 
But I'll tell you something else good shepherds do, and that is they help our church keep focused on the mission. Our mission, according to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, is to make and nurture disciples of Jesus. So often churches can get so internally focused that they really forget about the mission. They forget about all the people who aren't here right now who need the message of Jesus. I like the words of, of Jesus in Luke, rather in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, where, Jesus, where it says of Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Notice, like sheep without a shepherd he said to his disciples the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few ask the lord of harvest therefore to send out workers into the fields jesus says the problem's not the harvest there's plenty of of wheat out there the problem's the harvesters if we're not careful so often we get so focused on ourselves that we forget what god has called us to do good shepherds remind us of the mission but you know there's one other thing that good shepherds do good shepherds sacrifice for the flock now there's great reward in being a shepherd when you step up to that leadership in a local church you are doing God's work and you get to bless people there are moments in the life of a shepherd that are just just incredible I love our 12 elders. Our 12 current shepherds, there's wonderful camaraderie among them. There's a great spirit of unity. We talk about the most important things. We get to do the most important things. Oh, there's incredible blessing being a shepherd. But I want you to also know there's a fair amount of sacrifice as well. One of the items I have in my office is on my credenza. In most days, I'll I'll pick it up and just look at it. Is this, is this nail? And, and this nail's kind of heavy, and this nail's kind of sharp. It reminds me of the sacrifice that, that shepherds are involved in for the flock. You see, being a shepherd, or being any church leader for that moment, uh, for that matter, is a responsibility that will cause some pain. Jesus, our good shepherd, put it like this. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, this is a very countercultural message. Because, you see, this culture, we, we don't really like pain. We like things that are easy. We don't like to hear a message of sacrifice, yet... Yet Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I don't know what that means for every shepherd, how they are called to lay down their life for the flock. Some in years past, and maybe even in the future, will literally be called to lay down their life for the sheep. You probably know 11 of the 12 apostles literally gave their life for Jesus. That may happen again, but I don't know any, that it's anytime soon. More than likely, good shepherds will sacrifice in other ways. You see, it's, it's painful when you've worked with people and prayed with people and devoted hours to them, only to watch them walk away from the church 
maybe even walk away from God. It's painful when you're misunderstood or maybe unappreciated, perhaps criticized. It's it's painful when you, you feel like you're meeting together and you're praying and you're strategizing and you're thinking about the church and you're thinking about the people in the church. And there's those moments when you just feel so utterly ineffective. But when we feel the weight of the nail, I think it's important for all of us to, to remember the one who felt the nail's in a very personal way. It's important for us to remember the one who laid down his life for us. It's important for us to remember the one who felt the nails go through his wrists and his feet. It's important for us to remember the one who was abused and scorned and gave his life anyway. Congregation Remember why these men serve. Remember what the responsibility entails. Every one of our 12 elders, they don't take this responsibility lightly. And the thing about our shepherds is they deal with all the daily stuff that you deal with. And on top of that, they wrestle with the pain of marriages that are about ready to break up. They deal with with the couple who's struggling with a chronic illness. They, They feel the pain of your depression. They know about your kids and the struggle you have with them. And so my word for us is that we encourage these good and godly men who take on this responsibility of leadership. But today, what I want us to remember is that we have an incredibly good shepherd, Jesus. And that he laid down his life for us, and he gave his life so that we might